The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. The one-year mark of the invasion of Ukraine has come and we're sailing past it with no end in sight. Retired Vice Admiral of the U.S. Navy John Stuffelbeam says Putin continues to ramp up pressure by withdrawing from the New START Treaty, implying he's getting closer to going nuclear. If the Russian leader's upcoming offensive fails, Stufflebeam says, I see that failure will serve as a tripwire for releasing battlefield nukes. For as long as Putin remains in power, he will continue his military operation of defending Russia from what he sees as American and NATO aggression in Ukraine. As a result, Stufflebeam says, the Polish government is so nervous that they will be next, that they are offering to build a substantial U.S. military base in Poland with American personnel to act as a bulwark against Putin's intent to break NATO. I invited retired Vice Admiral and military historian John Stufflebeam to join me for a conversation that matters about the tense and fluid conflict in Ukraine that is slowly drawing the major powers into a proxy war between Western and Eastern centers of influence. John, welcome. Thanks, <clears throat> thank you. It's terrific to be with you, Stu. Well, it's nice to be with you, but I wish that uh, the circumstances, of course, were diff different. From your perspective, we're one year into this conflict now, and we've heard everybody marking off the one-year anniversary with a variety of different scenarios, saying this is the way that it's going to play out, the West doesn't want this, the East wants that. But what's your take on where we're at, and which direction this conflict might go in? Is it going to escalate? Is it going to de-escalate? Can we find some uh, negotiated peace? Well, for sure, nobody knows what's going to happen. But the one thing that is prudent to do is to look back at all the things that Putin has said over many years, uh, going back even before President Obama's tenure in office, where he dismissed the words that uh, Putin then used in front of him to talk about how he was going to reunite Russia by bringing Ukraine back into the fold. And this was after he had captured and took the Crimea Peninsula. He's been good at his word to everything so far. And he has threatened a red line uh, that if crossed would cause him to have to use nuclear weapons. Those are his words. What is that red line? He says that if we are attacked, well, this proxy war that's ongoing is getting dangerously close to that line. Now, uh, red lines are things that we have seen come and evaporate. But I go back to taking a look at the words that he has used in public fora for a long time, and he has been consistent throughout. He wishes to see NATO dissolved. He wishes to see the Western forces retreat from anywhere near the Russian borders. He wishes to increase the buffer and borders that they once had in the Soviet Union. He's doing all these things. And now if and when he gets cornered or feels cornered, the only option he really has left to throw at this are tactical battlefield nuclear weapons. And what that means to the world is a question that nobody wants to answer. What 
is the necessary response from NATO, should he go that far? Like, is it entrenched that there will be an equal and opposite response, or are there other options available? It's an interesting time we live in right now, and, and a dangerous one in my view, because the world leaders are not showing global statesmanship. The the thugs that are running the countries uh, as despots, which include Russia and China and North Korea and Iran, are all almost in unison describing what it is they intend to do as they have become emboldened because the West is not standing up to them. So what has to be done? We have to stand up to them. Do we have to go to war? No, but we need to have something that what I would consider much more clever and creative in terms of how we project power, which is the only thing that despotic leaders will respect, which is power. So they have to see that we have a buildup of military capability, that we replenish our somewhat depleted ammunition reserves, and we show the resolve that we will not back down. Is the United States doing that, though? Are, the, are those ammunition reserves being replenished? Are they uh, supporting Ukraine with the uh, weapons that they require? And are they demonstrating, not only to Russia, but to China and other uh, states that are in that sphere, that the U.S. will not back down? Uh, I would say there's a half-measured answer to that, which could be yes, and it could be no. Uh, I tend to sort of flavor or, or favor the side of no, because I don't think we're projecting power enough for it to be one, credible, and for two, to be something that would cause these leaders to uh, respect. Uh, and I use this uh, as a gauge with no, uh, no sense of satisfaction whatsoever to watch President Biden, who goes to the Ukraine and once again offers an, a handful of weapons to the Ukrainian armed forces, but refuses to step up beyond that to give them assurances that we will treat them as a NATO ally and that if attacked, that means it's an attack against all of us. So there was no exit strategy brought to that table. There were only just an arms full of weapons to give to the Ukrainians. But I think what, what, what many need to appreciate is that Putin is willing to throw many more bodies at this war than we have bullets to throw back. And so right now, there are assessments that are being done in the, in the public domain that would show, and U.S. military leaders have been on the record to say that if we had to open up a second, uh, let's call it a line of confrontation, pick a country, whether it's North Korea, Iran, or, or China particularly, we don't have enough to deal with that. We used to have a construct, which was a, a two-theater war capability. President Obama got rid of that, and we went to a we'll deal with whatever's in front of us and then we'll repackage it and go else to do it. So it's kid soccer in that degree. But what we're witnessing is how kid soccer is depleting all the soccer balls off this field in the Ukraine. And again, yet there's no strategy for victory. So this is an endless uh, stream of pouring 
the ammunition into until NATO allies start to get exhausted. And guess what? That is something that Xi Jinping is watching very closely and is looking to see where that can be to his advantage. So do you think that, that, is, that Ukraine is actually part of a larger strategy to uh, loosen the grip that the United States and NATO countries have on the Western sphere of influence and especially, you know, to get them to retreat from any incursion into that Eastern sphere of influence? Absolutely, Stu. Absolutely. And just go back and again, reread the words that have been spoken and written by Vladimir Putin. He absolutely hates with a visceral reaction to the United States of America because of what happened with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, dis the disillusion of the uh, USSR. He is, in his head, determined to recreate that Russia is the power for all of your Asia. He's been consistent in what his intent for that to be. So he is working methodically, in my view, on how to crack NATO apart. And I believe that NATO, I'm sorry, that Poland would be the next target if he in fact does get to placate and then occupy the Ukraine. Some of what you're telling me, John, is uh, contrary to what you hear in mainstream media where there seems to be this um, sense that Look at how resilient and uh, resourceful the Ukrainian people are, especially their army. They're uh, outmanned. I mean, it's asymmetrical warfare for sure. Um, you're saying, well, yeah, okay, maybe they're holding a stalemate, but that could be part of a larger strategy. Yeah, I think that is easily possible. Uh, as There are several things that happen with what's going on right now. Uh, we're watching the uh, uh, fecklessness of the Russian general staff. But there's an opportunity in this for a leader, Putin or whoever might uh, replace him, to say it's time to rebuild this general staff into an entity that can be made a winner. We did the same thing in our nation uh, back between World War I and World War II when we created the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, it created not a general staff, but it created a, a functional staff that has basically not lost a war since, given that Vietnam is a political loss, not a military loss. As, as you look at what's going on there, that Russian general staff will get better. Those leaders coming back now with battlefield experience will be better uh, with the conscripts and how they use them. But again, it's a war of attrition. And I think that, uh, well, Putin, first of all, has always been consistent to say Ukraine is part of Russia. He's never not said it that way ever. And so he's just making that whole. But where's he going next? What is he looking at? I mean, he's rattling his saber about those uh, uh, Balkan uh, states that have aspirations or are part of NATO. He doesn't like it that it's up there off the Kola Peninsula, that those small seafaring nations uh, are uh, giving a foothold for the West to look at the at Russia. Similarly, uh, Moldova, as we're seeing it uh, of late, and, and we know Poland is getting very nervous. We don't know if President Biden decided to accept the offer 
of military, basing military troops in Poland. Uh, he might try to defer that to a NATO organization, make it a NATO base, which would be just as much of an affrontery to Putin anyway. But his overall objective is to break NATO apart and then replace that central authority, if you will, or uh, collective authority of nations with a Russian power. That is his design. So where does Xi Jinping uh, fit into this equation? Because he initially stood back and was very careful about not expressing support or uh, offering any kind of aid. Well, we see that starting to diminish. And now China puts forward its own uh, peace plan uh, because it wants to broker some kind of deal between Ukraine and Russia. How important is this as a development in the way that the, the outcome of this conflict is going to unfold? Xi Jinping is very clever, uh, but he is very autocratic. But he also, like Putin, has been very consistent in what he has been saying and what he has been writing. And the larger entity of the CCP, the, the Chinese Communist Party, that is his ruling organization of that nation is also consistently backstopping him. And China is methodically, as we speak right now, is methodically trying to find ways to weaken the relationships amongst any allies that would oppose China's intent. And being, let there be no doubt, Xi has said that the world needs to revert to his authority. So right now it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a hegemony that he wishes to establish in the greater Asia, but he wants to be able to recreate this throughout the, all over the whole globe. And when you take a look at what he is doing in our hemisphere, the Northern, Northern hemisphere, the Western hemisphere, there is no doubt that he has uh, and is enacting warfare on us now to try to help push that along that intent. So I think that he's looking at what's going on in Ukraine and what's going on uh, with Russia in a couple of aspects. One, he knows that he's got the second most powerful uh, economy in the world. He knows that Russia's is a very fragile and probably on the brink of collapsing. And he knows that it is an economy that creates the world power because it can't afford the military, not the other way around, which is what the Soviet Union missed and therefore lost. And we're hopeful that the same thing will happen under Putin. But again, where he could go is nuclear. Now, Xi watches all of this and I think is very calculating about when and how he wants to make his moves. But I think that the first move we'll see is a reunification with Taiwan. And I think it's going to be kicked off within the next five to 10 years. The balloon. You talk about uh, China uh, incursions into the Western Hemisphere. What was the balloon from your perspective? Was it just a test? Well, I, I'll tell you that I don't know. I am talking to people who do know, and they're not talking. So I have to make some suppositions. The one thing that I do know is that this surveillance balloon program has been in existence for, for years, for many years, launching out of Hainan. 
they use them to one chart the uh, the uh, the reality of climate because one of the things that they recognize is that if somehow the world goes into a nuclear fight uh, the winds are going to have a very dramatic effect on what they do with all that radioactivity fallout as it starts to get redistributed within the atmosphere. So I know that they're conscious of that. But at the same time, they now have the largest nuclear arsenal with intercontinental ballistic missiles on the planet, bigger than the U.S., bigger than Russia's. Uh, I think it may be bigger than even any of the NATO uh, countries uh, combined. So what else are they doing with it? They have been doing uh, surveillance with these balloons for a long time. And I think that it was twofold. One is I think that they probably did lose control of it with uh, possibly no intent that it was uh, so obvious over the United States, or it's a test. And they really wanted to see, they've not paid any attention to us so far with this. And we have been over the US before. We now believe that to be the case, at least on the Western side of it. So now that it has crossed all of the US, the only thing they can do is move it up and move it down. And that puts it into a different uh, stream of wind to move it. So it could very well have been intentional. It could have been they lost control of it. It could have been accidental, but for sure it was a surveillance observation post. And oh, by the way, uh, all that stuff that was hanging underneath it, the three bus loads of whatever they are, uh, we're finding out what they are. They probably, we as citizens probably will never find out what all is on there, but for sure we will. And we have to recognize that there are hundreds of thousands of Chinese nationals here in the U.S. And my guess was, is that if we were paying that much attention by looking up at the balloon, who was paying attention to those in the taxi cabs and vehicles that were underneath it to be able to download whatever it was uploading? Because I'm sure it can be that as for as long as that balloon floated across the U.S., they were tracking it at least as well as we were. So we've got Putin who wants to weaken the resolve of the United States and NATO. Xi is in the same kind of mindset, but we have a couple of other players who are also on the stage that are making it far more difficult for the Western alliance to respond to and support Ukraine, one being North Korea and the other Iran. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing happening is that uh, we used to, well, let me back up to say that when the Soviet Union broke apart, we lived in what was then essentially a bipolar world. Uh, with that breakup and the redistribution of power and all the things that came along with it from that time, we saw kind of a, a, a multiple realms of power where Asia became much more uh, unique and different than what was in Europe. So no longer Eurasia, but just Europe and Asia separately. Then comes Africa. And all these things were sort of telling us it's a multipole world. But what I think is happening right now is that it is moving back uh, to a very much a bipolar world where those nations you just described are finding ways to be cooperative with each other, to support one another, and to have uh, in their words, a common enemy of the West, led principally by the United States of America. So now the question becomes is how creative and how innovative 
And how successful is the leadership of America if it's going to lead the nations that would oppose that axis of those four nations in a bipolar world? There's so much to cover here, but one of the things that I think about is that it appears that French President Macron is careful about responding to requests from uh, Zelensky of Ukraine. Zelensky wants more and more armaments. And the sense is that Macron is going, yes, but. And the but is, I want you to be able to defend your border, but I don't want you to be able to invade Russia. How uh, delicate of a tripwire, to use your word earlier, is Zelensky and what he wants to do? Uh, I don't know that I've heard that he wants to do anything other than defend a reunified Ukraine. Uh, I do believe he would like to have Crimea back from Russia, which Russia says will never happen. But I have a hard time imagining that Zelensky would attack the, U uh, the Russia proper, with the exception of, look at all these uh, batteries and barrages of artillery, whether it's a uh, unguided missiles or uh, uh, just large caliber weapons that are lobbed from over the border into Ukraine. Uh, it, it, it requires and demands a response. And Zelensky appreciates that if I'm going to take a leg out from underneath that stool, I've got to go kick it out from underneath it, which means I probably need to go somewhere into Russia or to a neighboring state to be able to do that. Uh, I... I've not studied Macron very closely, but I think that he kind of follows sort of the nationalistic heritage of France. Uh, and as a result, if, it, if there's not something in it that it, that is uh, of advantage to France, they don't really are very interested to want to support or promote it. Moreover, I think that there was in, is within NATO a relatively uh, strong background of denial. And that is, if we don't push the bear too hard, the bear won't bite us. Uh, you know, NATO exists uh, for collective defense. And, and when you take, uh, I'll say, a high altitude look at that organization, the greatest success of NATO has been that it has kept those nations from going to war with one another. Now that it could be an existential threat to the whole of NATO, I think that the denial is, oh my gosh, could we really withstand that if nuclear weapons were released on the European continent? Nobody can fathom that. Even, even a nuclear-capable country such as France just can't, I don't think, can accept that and fathom that. And I think that we have leaders now that are not clever enough or, or worldly enough or statesmanlike enough to to recognize how do we uh, how do we affect repressement? How do we how do we project power? How do we do things without striking the first blow that could cause a nuclear war amongst nuclear powers? Uh, our leaders are not yet demonstrating that they've got the wherewithal to do that, and I think that because of that, the denial factor is don't poke the bear. We don't want to get bit. However. On the other side of that is the bears getting more emboldened, more emboldened. In 2014, when Putin took Ukraine in his mind and he told the troops, okay, get ready, gear up, we're going to Ukraine next. And I think that when he is satisfied that he has a some kind of a status quo, 
of Ukraine, people will say, okay, now we're going to pick a country. I'll, I'm going to predict it would be Poland, but it could be another country as well, Moldova. I don't know. But he, he, I think he will start to do that. He will start to want to break apart NATO piece by piece as fast as he can and get the U.S. out of influence in that part of the world. While at the same time, Xi is watching and seeing how this reverberates out in the Pacific and out in Asia. And I think he's calculating what his moves will be based upon the success or failures of what Russia has. And more importantly, how does the rest of the world react to it? I know you can't have a crystal ball. Uh, anything to do with warfare is very fluid. But a year from now, do you think we're going to be having this same conversation about where the war goes next? Or do you anticipate that we might be able to get to some kind of standoff? You're right. I don't have a crystal ball, but I've never been shy to offer an opinion. Uh, and in my opinion, we're going to have the same conversation a year from now, because I think that the Western allies, the Western forces that are waging, if you will, a proxy defensive reaction to Russia's incursion in Ukraine is just what are we doing? What's the bare minimum that keeps it from going full hot uh, and doesn't allow uh, Russia what it wants to do, which is now to own and, and create uh, Russia with part of Ukraine? or maybe all of Ukraine. Uh, I, I think we're just going to stay here because what I'm seeing is the kid soccer approach to international diplomacy and world uh, national or international security. We're doing the absolute minimum we can to defer that really tough question as far down the road as possible. Kicking the can. I'm not sure I like your answer, but I think that you're probably accurate. Um, hope I'm wrong. Hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, I hope you're wrong too. I thank you for your time today. An enlightening conversation. You're most welcome.